You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Vicki Goldberg is the author of Photography in Print, selected by the Wall Street Journal as one of the five best books of all time on photography. Her new book is The White House, The President's Home in Photographs and History. Thank you for joining me, Vicki. Oh, thank you for asking. I'm pleased to be here. You know, Vicki, when I hear the phrase, the White House, up until I read this book and looked through it, uh, my response would be to think of, like, maybe a text press release or something on the CNN political ticker or just some kind of vague, vaporous, anonymous transmission from a, a political machine generally in response to another political machine. Oh, dear. Now, what this book does is really brings home to us viscerally. It tells us the story of the White House as a house where people live and where this country is governed from. And I think that makes a really, um, it, it really changes our perception. I think it's, in, in a sense, I think it's a very political book because it has the effect of making us think, wow, this is a, a place where things happen. And it's not just this representation of one side or another. It's a thing about real people and real life. Well, I have... Uh delighted that you feel that way about it. I do, too. It's a, it's a symbol. The White House is certainly a symbol of America, but it's a living symbol. Mm-hmm. Uh, people live in it. Uh, people work in it. People decide momentous things in it. Uh, at the meantime, uh, kids play. Uh, dogs bark. <laughs> and uh, the, the real politics uh, go on ad infinitum. Uh, and uh, the president has has to deal with all of that, but he also has got a wife, and he's got uh, a staff, and he's got to take care of the media, and he's got to think about what we're going to do about the Defense Department and about the next election. Goodness knows we are aware of that at this particular moment, but uh, presidents have always been aware of it, although not usually so early in a term. And so I think that as symbols go, it is the most vibrant, the most changing, and probably, I would say, the most important in our country. Uh, In the 19th century, when you had uh, the great popularity of stereos, the the most popular stereos in America were, in this order, Niagara Falls, Yosemite, and the White House. Uh, because those were the monuments of our country. We didn't have the kind of monuments Europe had. We had natural monuments, but we also had this vivid representation of what a republic was and stood for. It wasn't a castle. Uh, the uh, original designer, who designed uh, Charles L'Enfant, who designed Washington, wanted to make a palace, and the Americans weren't having any of that. They didn't want a palace. Uh, they wanted to call George Washington your majesty, and he didn't want that either. We were something new in history, and I do think that this building is evidence of it, and in fact, to a certain degree, what goes on in it is evidence of it. But in the meantime, there's a life that runs through it, and the photographs, I mean, when you see it visually, some of them, I think, are very funny, 
uh, Betty Ford dancing on the cabinet room table, for instance, but some of them are quite serious. When you see the visual images, you realize that it is a vibrant, changing, fascinating, and majorly important place. The last thing everybody should know, but I think the photographs make it all the clearer. Well, one of the things I think that this book does very well is just to tell uh, a variety of stories about the White House, both in words and in pictures. And I'd like you to just talk about this must have been a very difficult project to pull together in terms of getting all the historical images and um, from whatever shape they were in. I'm looking here at a daguerreotype from 1846, um, which is the very first image of the White House in the book. And I'm thinking, boy, that how do you get that into digital format here in the 21st century without destroying the thing? <laughs> well, so some daguerreotypes are still in really quite good shape. And uh, those that are not, we now can fix a little bit in, in Photoshop or with a really good restorer. But I think that one was probably in very good shape. The, uh, most of the images uh, were in the digital archives of the White House Historical Association, which came to me to find out whether they had a book about photographs. They've done a great uh, two-volume history of the White House. They've, they have a quarterly about the White House, but they, and everything's been illustrated with a few photographs. But they said, we've got thousands of photographs in our digital digital archives, and we don't know if there's a book just about the photographs. And I said, show me the photographs. And they showed me several hundred, and I went, whoopee, you surely do have one, because they're pretty fascinating. Uh, some 19th century photographs are still, uh, both daguerreotypes and uh, albumin prints and collodion prints, etc., are still in really wonderful shape. Uh, they did very good processing in that time, and uh, I think almost all of these photographs were in good shape. When the, when the photographs were not, we probably didn't use them. Uh, and uh, they're in various, the originals are in various places, but uh, they have been gathered over 50 years or so in, to illustrate different articles. But many of these images have not been published for, oh, well over a century. A couple of them have never been published. Uh, so it took a lot of looking. I found a number of images as I started reading for research. Uh, a number were found in presidential libraries, ones if, if they were relatively recent, 20th century. Uh, and uh, I found a couple of dealers, and we found some of the, of the uh, very contemporary things on the White House flicker stream. So there are a lot of different places, but uh, I assure you that you can find... 19th century, including daguerreotypes, in a still almost perfect condition. Not all of them, but there are some. Well, one of the things, too, that this book is so good at is making us realize what a closed-minded perception we have of the White House, of the presidency, of what goes on there, because I'm looking, again, at a picture of the West Wing on fire just after Black Friday. That's amazing. I mean, that... It is indeed, and uh, uh, it was very lucky that that fire did not spread to the White House itself. And uh, President Hoover was giving a party for children that night, and somebody came and very quietly whispered to him, the West Wing's on fire. So he very quietly whispered to his wife, keep the children happy. And he raced out and into the building, and quickly the firemen pulled him out because that building was full of papers and the fire was spreading very fast. And it did a lot of damage, but they brought it under control, and so it didn't spread. 
Now, I, too, didn't know that the uh, West Wing was ever on fire. And uh, I didn't know that the White House itself had so many uh, construction problems or so many problems in its construction that twice it was uh, suggested that they should pull the house down and start over from scratch. It was never done uh, uh, when it was suggested to Harry Truman, who loved the White House and loved history, he said that will be so dispiriting for the American people who look to the White House as the great symbol of the country. Let's not do that. And so he moved out into Blair House, and they gutted the house uh, up to the third floor, but they kept the exterior standing so that it would look perfectly fine. But there's a photograph that stunned me of a bulldozer inside the White House. I mean, who ever dreamed of that either? That's so amazing. It's That's one of the things I think, again, that, uh, about this book is that it gives us a portrait of an America that we don't really think about as even being possible now. Well, <laughs> uh, some of us are <laughs> rather alarmed about what's happening in America now. I don't know exactly <laughs> what's possible, but uh, if you think about the political events of the past, uh, we would think they were not possible either. When you think mm. about, for instance, Andrew Jackson, who was in from the late 20s to the late 30s, uh, he was uh, the first president who had something really resembling a popular elect- electoral vote. And uh, he had a pe- he was not particularly well-educated. He was not a Southern aristocrat like um, um, Madison and, and uh, uh, Jefferson. And uh, when uh, his followers came to the inauguration, and a lot of them were, were soldiers from the War of 1812, where, he, where uh, Jackson had been a, a heroic general, and a lot of them, they came on peg legs, they came in tattered clothes, they were poor, and they swarmed into the White House for the reception after the inauguration. Now, the, the uh, well-to-do of, of Washington had always gone to that reception, but they weren't used to meeting people who were uh, smelly and tattered. And the American people. Yes, the American people. It was the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really became the people's house under Jackson, even though Jefferson had opened it. And, and that reception was so crowded and so destructive. The guys with their money boots stood on the taffeta couches, and the, they uh, broke China like crazy. And finally, Jackson was so tired of all that crowd, he climbed out a window and went out to an inn to have dinner. And we can't imagine that sort of thing going on either. Some of the things we can imagine, <clears throat> however, from the more recent past, are really beautifully captured here. There's a great picture of Princess Di dancing with John Travolta, and it just takes us back to, you know, kind of an impossibly sunny and happy moment in our country's recent history, too. Well, uh, don't you think that the, the past always looks better? We, <laughs> we, we have thought about a golden age for many years, and I've had smallpox and and polio and all sorts of things that we've conquered. And I I do not think we are in a good place in our country, uh, but I don't think that all the indications, even in this book, are of something wonderful that was going on back then either. Um, mostly uh, there are not pictures of destruction, particularly except for the fire in the White House, but... Um, there were presidents who were not who were hardly popular. There's Lincoln at McClellan's camp mm. after the Battle of Antietam. That was a terrible time in our history, probably yes. one of the worst times we've ever lived through. And, and the photos are so evocative too. <clears throat> it's interesting too in our, our so that um, 
you think of the modern age as becoming increasingly libertine, but we're actually, I think, far more prudish than we ever were. The idea of a president getting married while in office seems just like would, pe- would set people's hair on fire today. <laughs> <laughs> well, particularly uh, when Grover Cleveland got married in the White House, he married the woman who had been his ward since she was 11, and his law partner, who was her father, died. So she was a lot younger than he, but it was terrifically exciting to people. She was attractive. She was young. She was very popular. But the, and the press was so excited, they tried to sneak away on a honeymoon, and the press followed in droves and staked out the place for 24 hours a day, which made him furious. So if a president should get married in the White House today, I'm afraid something very similar would happen. The birth of the paparazzi. <laughs> Yeah, they uh, listen, the mass media, uh, such as it was, the masses were smaller in the 19th century, was very busy, and especially busy with the president. Mm. Uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, tried very hard to keep them away at some point, so even though he was much photographed. Uh, and in Woodrow Wilson's day, he offered to... Uh, to fight one of the uh, photographers, <laughs> and Harry Truman uh, wrote a really nasty letter when somebody, when a music critic criticized his daughter's uh, musical recital and said that he was going to have to wind up with beefsteak on his eye if he ever did such a thing again. So uh, the uh, the press has not always, uh, has scarcely always been friendly to the presidents, and um the photographers have not been either. However, there are some, you can, in the official portrait of uh, Teddy Roosevelt in the president's room, you can see why they imbe- elected that guy president. I mean, he <laughs> looks like he's ready to kick ass. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> There's no question. He was he was very good at image making. That, uh, you'll notice in that portrait, he's got an enormous globe. Now, the, the uh, there was always a globe in the president's office, but Teddy made it a really big one. Uh, partly because his predecessor, William McKinley, uh, who was assassinated, which is why Teddy became president the first time around, he was vice president and succeeded to the office, but he had made us an empire with the Spanish-American War and uh, accessing the Philippines, etc. Teddy made us an international uh, empire in a way. He First place, that globe, if you turn it at a circular angle, all you could see of the entire Earth was North America and South America as if they were it. But in the second place, he was called on to mediate the Russian-Japanese War, which he did successfully, and he won a Nobel Prize, a Nobel Peace Prize for having done so. So he, he had been a rough writer, and he was an assertive personality, and that stance with his hand on his uh, hip was quite natural to him. There's a painting of him with it. There are photographs of him with it. And then that photograph, he looks like, He's just advancing toward us. I, it is an amazing picture of a man who was truly amazing. Now, there's also, shockingly, a really great portrait of Nixon in here where he looks really thoughtful, and, and you think, well, yeah. And, and I was, you know, it's kind of touching to just see the variety in these portraits and, and just to see how we've looked at our presidents and also to get in in the, with the, our now perfect 2020 hindsight to say, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, when photography came along, uh, it, it was, the Garrett's process was announced to the world in 1839. And by 1843, John Quincy Adams, 
who was president in the second half of the 20s when there were no uh, photographs around, he had had seven photographs taken, and he said all of them were too true to the original. People wanted realism, but they didn't like it of themselves very much. That's always uh, the problem I find with the photographs of me. They look far too re- like much like me. <laughs> it's still a problem, even though people... Even though one French writer said of daguerreotypes that they tended to look like fried whiting stuck to a silver plate, uh, they were particularly harsh because there was no artificial light and you had to pose for a very long time. But that picture of Nixon really struck me. I found that in a, in a book about him because uh, half of his face is really in shadow, and he approved that portrait. It was an official portrait. And I, it's strikes me that that's very much about the two sides of Nixon. He mm. is the man who opened up China, but he's also the man who was totally paranoid and who uh, put this country in danger with the Watergate affairs. And I think it's all visible in some way, at least that was the way you can read that photograph in that picture. Well, that's, I think, one of the strengths of this book. And I'd I just like you to, to step back and talk a little bit about immersing yourself in these photographs and then figuring out, because you do a really great job of laying this out, you take a, we take a look at the president's photographs, their families, and it builds up, as I say, a series of stories that tell us that the White House is more than just a press release, which is nice to, <laughs> it's nice to know. Yes, yeah, yeah, it certainly is. Well, I just I had a really fascinating time with all of this. Uh, I, in the first place, I had I must have looked to begin with through five or six thousand photographs, and I winnowed those down to I don't know maybe eight hundred or something like that, and then I added window on them down to three hundred and fifty, and ultimately to about a hundred less than that, and it was all difficult. But some of those photographs, I was interested in the ones that were a great surprise. And I was also interested in ones that told me something that I had never known or made it more clear. Sometimes when you found out something more about the photograph, you discovered something you, that you hadn't been aware of. There's a picture in there, for instance, uh, that I wanted to put in of uh, George W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice. And I was doing a chapter on portraits of presidents, and he's a relatively recent one. And he's way in the background on the phone, and she's in the foreground looking out of the window. And I thought, this is the way we can do portraits of presidents now. There have been so many that you put them in the background, and you still understand how important they are. That was before I knew the date of that photograph, which was September 12, 2001, the day after the uh, bombing of the planes crashed into the World Trade Center. That puts an entirely different construction on that picture. It make, it's a picture of the, the terrible things that the president has to deal with. It's a picture uh, Condoleezza Rice is looking out into what must seem to her a barren and threatened land, uh, whatever she can see out of the Oval Office. And uh, Bush is probably talking to one of his secretary, cabinet secretaries or something like that. It's... It's photographs tell you something, but they do not explain it. And it is, once you start looking into it and you find the background for it, you do, there's almost always a story. When you've got uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt with that famous image of him with his uh, cigarette holder at an angle and he's in an open car and his dog is uh, uh, standing up in the wind, you realize that that was a man who really understood 
how much the image, how much impact the image of a president carried, because I don't think it's entirely natural to put your cigarette holder at that angle, but it made him instantly recognizable. It made him, and it, with his big smile, it made him look very vigorous. Uh, the press then was much kinder and did not show him being carried onto a stage before he had to give a lecture. Uh, they had made a deal with his press secretary that he would, they would have better access than people ordinarily had to presidents, so, longer, so long as they didn't show just how incapacitated he was. And it happens time and again when you figure out things like that. When, when you look at uh, the 1860 portrait of Lincoln that Brady took the day after Lincoln arrived in New York, that's a landmark photograph, both in the history of photography and the history of elections. There was a new technology which would allow photographs. It's not a daguerreotype. It, it's a, made a daguerreotype unique, uh, but there were negative processes available then which could give you lots of photographs. And this, there was a new kind of photograph called a carte de a visiting card with a little photograph. It could be made eight on one single photographic plate. And it could it cost very little. It fit into a pocket. It fit into an album. It could be sent through the mail. You could put it in a hat band. So a lot of people, for the first time, could see an original image of a presidential candidate. Before then, since you couldn't publish photographs in print at that time, you could see engravings after photographs, but you couldn't publish the original. People had had images of the way the president looked, and Lincoln did not a campaign after he was nominated because it was thought to be terribly egotistical to speak for yourself. So what people had of him was either something written or they had an image of him in which Brady had made him look presidential. No political campaign after that campaign was ever not spread around with photographs. It was Lincoln's campaign that started that partly because of this new technology. And it changed, I mean, look at what's going on with the Republican debates with that photographically derived medium called the television. Uh, we see the presidential candidates now. People did not see them before then. That's How many not people a, could a see a single quantum change? Time? Yeah, it was an enormous change. And it goes all the way back to 1860. Now, there's also some great pictures of the people who take pictures of the White House. And I'm the picture of the guy <clears throat> on the fire ladder. <laughs> yes. And, uh, isn't that wonderful? He got some training for that from the National Geographic, I think. Uh, and then the picture was on the cover of the first guidebook to the White House, which was made for Jackie Kennedy by the White House Historical Association. But I like the picture of Harry Truman taking a picture of all the White House news photographers on the lawn of the White House. He said he was photographing the One More Club because there was no photograph that didn't say just one more about 30 times. <laughs> you know, uh, also, one of the things that, that this makes us realize, too, and you've alluded to this several times, is the, that, you know, the White House understood and its occupants understood very early on the power that these images had and the power that they had to help uh, really carve out, uh, you know, a place for this country in the world. Oh, oh no question. And, uh, you know, since America was an invention, it needed to define itself as a country. 
and uh, Americans needed to define uh, the American character. Nobody had much idea what any of that was. Country needs symbols. It needs a flag, which we got, and it needs a seal, which we got. That was a controversy, incidentally, and it needs a place that is central to the government, that, which we got. That's the White House. And it was made in, in it was designed in this uh, quite classical way, which is a clear reference to uh, the Greek democracy and the, and the Roman government. Uh, and uh, the uh, the eagle, for instance, which is on the Great Seal, Benjamin Franklin complained about that bitterly. He said it was a bird of ill moral character. He'd rather have had a turkey. Well, I'm not sure we would have liked to have had a turkey on our Great Seal, but. Uh, a lot is conveyed by symbols, and uh, certainly uh, the first picture of uh, the White House was on the cover of a book written by an Englishman in 1807, long before there were photographs. And what did he choose to, to show people that this was America? He chose the White House, and it has stood for America ever since. It now is, if you say the White House, you know what that means. You know that it means the president or the administration and, and that it means America. It doesn't mean any place else. And the question of the photographs of the reason that John Quincy Adams was photographed seven times within four years of the invention of photography was that people wanted to know what their leaders looked like, partly because they figured that that would tell them something about the American character, particularly at a time when people believed that a man's face showed not just his character but his soul. So when you were, you know, people say that, there was, that the native peoples were worried that cameras would steal their soul, uh, people in the 19th century were hope, would hope that was, was happen, that you would really be able to detect what a man was like by looking at his face. So... Brady, for instance, had a gallery of illustrious Americans quite early in the mid-century, and uh, when the Library of Congress went to buy his proposed buying his archive in 1871, they said that they thought it would be it would boost people's patriotism and pride in America. This was all portraits of American leaders. Uh, uh, that it would be educational, and that it would also in improve American artistic taste, which was not thought to be so very high at that time. Well, I don't know if it's gotten any better in the intervening <laughs> years. I can't <laughs> argue with you on that. But uh, one thing that is so interesting, you uh, kind of wrap up the book with the president's animals, animals in the White House. We all know about the dogs and the cats. The elephants and the raccoons, however, that's a different story. And there's a fabulous picture of Ike with getting an elephant. And it looks just so, I don't know, there's something about that picture that's really appealing. Well, I, that was a baby elephant, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the, the White House has been getting strange animals from abroad for forever. Uh, incidentally, the last 16 presidents have had dogs. They haven't all had cats, but they've had dogs. But um, the elephant and uh, the uh, I think there was a zebra and there was a lion cub and there was uh, all sorts of things at various times. The White House simply hasn't had a lot of room for those, so they've all gone off to the Washington Zoo. But 
in the meantime, the press, of course, is looking for the photography, particularly photographers are looking for something that will look good in the papers. And the picture of a president with a baby elephant is a no-brainer. I mean, you would want to take that picture. I thought it was also rather uh, amusing that the, the GOP, which is symbolized by an elephant, should have an elephant with its president, although the the, president, the gift was really to the United States of America, not to Ike himself, and I doubt very seriously that the people who said it knew that that was a Republican symbol. There's the a raccoon. Also, the raccoon. Was, I love uh, Grace and her raccoon. Yeah, yes, that was a pet. That's an odd pet. I only know them to go into the garbage. But how about the possum that strayed into the oh, White House? I love that possum picture too. That's so cool. He, yeah. it looks really kind of gnarly. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't think possums look much other way, but. Uh, it it straight onto the grounds and the president picked it up and and then this local basketball team had lost its mascot possum and when they heard that the president had a possum they came to see if it was their possum and it was not they were very sad but they asked if they could borrow it and of course the president said yes and then the basketball team went on to win the entire season and they credited it to the possum and returned it to the White House and the president wrote them a nice nice note saying that he would take care of Billy Possum. You know, I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about this book is just, as I alluded to earlier, just the variety of stories that it tells us. And, you know, the cumulative power of this book is is really interesting. As I say, I think ultimately it's a very political book, and it's a book that lands us right square in the center of Main Street America and lets us reminds us that no matter what kind of extremes we see today on either side, that uh, the White House itself is really the people's house. It always has been the people's house, where people, actual humans, are doing business. Well, and also, it, when Truman wanted to build an extension that nobody was very happy about, one of the Washington papers wrote that he should remember that he really didn't own that house. He only had a lease on it, and it might be terminated <laughs> in a very short time. <laughs> It is the people's house. It's Jefferson already in 1801 opened that house every day to the people. Now, Washington's population was a lot smaller then, and transportation across the country wasn't very good. But it was understood practically from the beginning that this was, this was a new kind of government. Uh, we didn't have armed guards standing at the uh, doors of Buckingham Palace uh, or, because we didn't have Buckingham Palace. We had the White House. And although this, it's been much restricted since 2001, uh, it's still possible for people to go there. And it is incredibly beautiful, I must say. I've been speaking with Vicki Goldberg. Her new book is The White House, The President's Home in Photographs in History. Thank you for joining me, Vicki. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.